You're listening to a 3MBS podcast. Be sure to listen, rate and subscribe to this and our other podcasts, now available on iTunes. Welcome to Beyond the Stage for 3MBS. Conversations about how music can prepare you for career success in medicine, law, business and beyond. It teaches you successful compromise in which everyone gets most of what they want. The whole is indeed greater than the sum of the parts, but everyone probably hasn't got everything they wanted. Mm. And, and it's certainly a training for leadership. Heaven knows it's also a training for policy and politics. Obviously, it's something I listen to all the time. It's not just every day, but it's kind of most of the time. So I think when you've spent that much of your life playing and listening to music, it's never not there. Welcome to episode three of Beyond the Stage podcast for 3MBS. I'm your host, Susan DeWedger, and today I'm really pleased that our guest is John Daly, CEO of the Grattan Institute. John, welcome and thanks for joining us today. It's a pleasure. <laughs> um, now, can you tell us a little bit about the aims and the activities of the Grattan Institute? Because it's an organisation that appears frequently in the media, but many people may not know what role the Grattan Institute plays. So the Grattan Institute's a think tank. Our objective is to do research on uh, public policy in Australia and then talk about that in public uh, with the aim ultimately of improving what governments do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and hopefully that improves uh, the lives of, of everyone in Australia. And we cover everything from uh, health to education to energy to tax and welfare policy uh, and a whole series of other topics as well. So it's a role, uh, it's an organisation and your role must involve engaging with stakeholders from all across sectors of business and community and government? That's right. Um, Good public policy uh, looks at everything from uh, the not-for-profit sector, um, the corporate sector, obviously individuals in the community, and of course you're always talking to government. Often, in fact, almost always, you're in the business of trying to persuade government to do something differently, <laughs> or occasionally you're trying to persuade them not to do something stupid. <laughs> and your role as CEO, what does that encompass? Well, some of it is the kind of business of being a chief executive and and keeping the show on the road and doing the governance and and ensuring that you've got the right staff and ensuring that they're working productively and they're happy doing their job. Mm -hmm. Uh, Fortunately, there's also a part of it uh, which is um, me doing some of my own work. Um, So I tend to mainly work in... uh, budget policy, tax policy, and obviously go and do research in that. I have people to help and then go and talk about that publicly and talk to stakeholders behind closed doors usually <laughs> as, uh, about what they might think about and do about that. Uh, and then as a chief executive, also part of my role is looking at the output of all of the programs of Grattan Institute uh, and ensuring that uh, it remains independent and rigorous and practical mm. uh, in the sense of being very clear about what it is that government should do tomorrow that's maybe different from what it does today. Mm. So, so I guess some of the key skills for you to do that role effectively would be building great relationships. 
a lot of it is about building great relationships uh, both within Grattan. You're trying to corral different people who've got different backgrounds mm. to, to produce something that's really high quality that they all believe in. Uh, and then, of course, you're taking that work out into the big wide world where there will definitely be people who don't agree with it mm. uh, and trying to convince them uh, to think about life differently <laughs> uh, and then sometimes trying to corral them towards some kind of compromise, which may not be the first best answer, mm. but it's a lot better than where we are at the moment. Sounds a lot like the job of a conductor. Uh, a little bit. I, I suspect that the job inside Grattan Institute is actually much more like the job of a chamber musician. Okay. Uh, you're busy listening to lots of other people and then you've got your own part and you're trying to mm. create something which is a harmonious whole that everyone's putting in some of their own individuality mm. and that's kind of shining through. But at the same time, it's all blending together. Mm. Uh, as it goes out into the big wide world... Um, Sometimes it's it's a soloist. You're essentially presenting something and there needs to be a little bit of pizzazz, mm. a little bit of um, confidence and self-assurance mm -hmm. about it. Uh, sometimes uh, it's the job of a conductor as you try and conduct other people to do things. Um, sometimes uh, it's an accompanist. Um, you're, someone else is doing something and you're busy trying to encourage it along. When they make a slight misstep, then you... You know, catch them and hopefully not too many people notice. <laughs> uh, so a lot of those skills are part of what it's about. Wow. That's what we'll get to a little bit later on in our conversation, but it's a great set of skills. It's training for excellence and training for success in life, really, wherever you choose to go. It is. Uh, and it's about knowing, it's about that funny balance that you have about saying, um, putting an enormous amount of effort into something, making it the very best you can make it mm. at the time, but accepting it's not perfect, mm -hmm. accepting you could spend another two years and it'll be that much better, yeah. but knowing actually the right answer is put it out. It's pretty good. Mm -hmm. uh, do your thing. It will hopefully add to people's lives and then move on to the next thing. So prior to your role at Grattan, you held very senior management positions, uh, executive positions with the Victorian Department of Premier and Cabinet, which I guess is where your interest in public policy came from, and also as Managing Director of eTrade, which is the online brokerage arm for ANZ, which is where your corporate experience and corporate interest comes from. But your training was originally in law at Oxford and, and before that at the University of Melbourne. So can you tell us how you managed to transition into sort of executive and management from training in law? So I did law. It's not a big jump from law into public policy and, and I did that as well as working as a lawyer. Uh, I then went to Oxford and I did a doctorate in legal philosophy, which is more about political philosophy than it is about anything else. Uh, with a doctorate in essentially political philosophy from Oxford, you are unemployable. Uh, and consequently, I joined McKinsey, the management consultants, because yes. that's what you do when you're unemployable is you join McKinsey. <laughs> and I had a fantastic time. I learned a great deal very quickly. And as a training in how businesses think, mm. but much more generally in how to attack problems in a very effective way, it was a fantastic training. And after a couple of years at McKinsey, I transitioned over to ANZ, where I was first the head of strategy and then, as you said, ran the online stockbroking arm, uh, eTrade Australia. So that's what got me into corporate roles. I'd always wanted to get back into public policy. And when Grattan Institute came up, it was something that was a bit private sector, and a bit public sector and a bit academic. And for someone like me who had a very varied background, that was perfect. So obviously all our listeners are lovers of music. We've alluded a little bit to your involvement and how that you're a musician. Can you tell us how music fits into your life? Where did you start and where's the journey taken you as a musician? 
So I think I started playing piano at the age of four, and I'm pretty sure I started playing recorder at the age of four. And uh, all musicians, I think, when you think about music, when you imagine it in your mind, you know, if you've been a violinist for a really long time, you kind of use the fingering to kind of figure out what the notes Mm. are. And when you're a pianist, you kind of play it. I've realised that actually I still think about music in my mind with recorder fingering. Uh, Really? I barely picked up a recorder in in 40 odd years, but obviously the place that the twig gets bent the first time is where it stays. stays. Um, And then I uh, I picked up violin at the age of uh, about six or seven, played both piano piano and violin uh, through to year 12, had a lovely time. Uh, And then um, when I went to university, um, I kept up the piano. I spent two years uh, while I was allegedly studying uh, my science law degree, uh, in fact, doing music performance uh, at the conservatorium with Max Cook, who's still going, Mm. still, still a fabulous teacher as he was back then. And I also kept up the violin uh, more in a spare parts capacity. I played for the Australian Youth Orchestra and so I was playing lots of string quartets and then I discovered you got to play with even better string quartets if you were a viola player, which was even more unfashionable back then than it is now. And so I picked up the viola and played that in the Con Orchestra and then played lots of string quartets. So that was that side. And then I also did quite a lot of singing. So I sang as a boy soprano for a church choir in in Canberra, um, sort of every service and a rehearsal, two rehearsals as well every week for, I don't know, five or six years, which again is a fantastically good training uh, for any musician. Uh, then, of course, I never got to sing again because they always wanted me in the school orchestra. Uh, and so when I went to Oxford, because I'd always wanted to get back into singing, I just didn't tell anyone I could play the violin. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I got into the choirs in Oxford, and of course that's an extraordinary place oh for goodness. singing. There's there's thirty odd choirs in Oxford that are all worth hearing. Um, some of them are, as always, much more wonderful than others, but but they're all pretty good. Uh, and it's an amazingly deep tradition, and it was a chance mm. to really get inside that choral tradition and and be part of it. It's such great history in their performance practice and in their repertoire choices. It's, it's and in, and in just the sheer skills. I mean, mm. the, the sight reading capability that is just simply expected is phenomenal. Mm. You know, these are people who, for whom it is simply standard practice that you show up an hour before the service. There'll be about twenty-five minutes worth of singing in the service, much of which you will never have seen before. Now, some of it's easy it's merely four part hymn singing <laughs> you know some of it will be uh you know full on 16th century polyphony unaccompanied mm. and you've got you know 50 minutes to learn 20 odd minutes worth of music and then on goes the service Goodness. so it puts an enormously high premium on on very accurate sight reading and and being able to then turn that into something musical um, uh, almost intuitively, so that the choir sounds like a choir. Mm. It's it's, phenom- it's a phenomenal set of skills that we just take for granted, and because we're, we're focused on the performance outcome and the uh, the connection with the audience, and we often forget the legs of what makes that happen. You know, it's just such a depth of skill to be able to do it. Yeah, and of course, it's it's because it's not just about the fifty minute rehearsal yes, immediately right. beforehand. It's yeah. about a lifetime of training that's gone into the it. The iceberg analogy, isn't it? It's wonderful. So that took you right through to finishing your doctoral studies at Oxford, and then when you embarked on the start of the career that you have now. How, how has music been a part of that part of your life? Well, I've discovered it's very hard to uh, have a real job and have a family 
and uh, keep up mm. all of singing and violin and, and piano. So and, and, viol- and viola. And, and viola. And recorder. So, so I, reg- <laughs> yes, um, I regret to say the only thing I'm really keeping up is the piano. Uh, only so many things you can do. And, and one of the things I've discovered is if you don't do very much practice, then the violin really does sound pretty dreadful. <laughs> um, whereas if you don't do very much practice, you can kind of get by on the piano. <laughs> I'm sure. I, I can hear the sound of every pianist in Melbourne <laughs> keeling over now <laughs> hearing you say that. I, I hear them, but the reality is um, if, if you play the piano incorrectly, you miss a note here or there, it's slightly uneven. If you play the violin slightly inaccurately, it's just yeah. plain out of yeah. tune. John, I play the horn, so amplify that by 1,000%. <laughs> so I'm still playing the piano uh, bits and pieces to entertain myself and, and then once a year the ballet exams are on and I play for the South Yarra Ballet Studio. Uh, and the ballet exams are really quite an extraordinary exercise. So you have all of these, you know, seven to 12, 13 year olds uh, doing their ballet exam. It's probably the most ritualized thing they have in their lives. Mm. Uh, but behind it is they have all too many of them, I suspect, these days um, play to uh, CDs and, mm. and so on. But you are still supposed to, and I think it's much better practice to have a live pianist. And it's actually a huge amount of repertoire. So each grade, and there's about six of them um, that, that I do. Each grade's got about 20, 30 minutes worth of music and you've got six of those. So it's the better part of three hours worth of repertoire, which uh, is an awful lot of repertoire. Yes. But it's it's immense fun uh, and trying to make musical sense of each one of those excerpts. Every grade's got about 20-odd you know, excerpts. So it's, mm. it's a fun thing to do and it means that at least once a year there's several months in which I absolutely have to practice because <laughs> of... Of course, if you miss a beat or you get slightly distracted, you know, there'll be some tearful nine-year-old that their dance went terribly oh, wrong. no. Because... <laughs> You've ruined their life, John. Because <laughs> the pianist wasn't concentrating. Months and months and months of preparation. <laughs> and I guess I sort of wanted to talk further on that about how, about some of the skills that came out of your music training, but two of the things that just jump out immediately are, are your ability to perform under pressure. And you were saying that came from the choral training at Oxford and you're still continuing to hone that skill with the preparation and performance of the ballet exams. Yeah. Uh, that's absolutely right, um, and and of course all of that that training on the on the violin and piano. I mean, all of it's about. I did you know my fair share of performances, and it's always about learning that um, what you do when the adrenaline is flowing mm. is really different from um, <laughs> the practice room. What, what happens in the practice room? <laughs> uh, and uh, but on the other hand, a little bit like as Tiger Woods said, you know, the more I practice, the luckier I get. Mm. Um, that that practice really does make a difference. So yes, I guess it teaches you both that. Preparation and and putting in the hard yards is absolutely vital, but then at the same time, the ability to perform, and that's a very distinctive skill, Mm. the ability to stand up, even though the butterflies are going, and project assurance and project um, that you know this material and Mm -hmm. that you want to communicate it to someone else. And, of course, the the flip side of those nerves, the flip side of that energy is that it's precisely that energy that communicates to an audience. You know, on those very rare occasions when those nerves don't cut in, that's actually when you get really worried because you don't have the energy to Mm. communicate to the audience whatever it is you've got to say. 
obviously in Grattan Institute, we've got lots of things to say about public policy and it's those um, performance skills that are about that communication. Mm. And also about uh, the, 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 the content and the work that you're producing, it's more important than how it's, – it's not about you. It's really not about how you or I are feeling. It's about the message that we're and the compelling stories we're telling and and the change we're trying to make and all the music we're we're performing. So it, it's a way of elevating beyond that concern of ego and of self to that the message is more important. I guess I never thought about it that way, but yes, that's absolutely true. That you're essentially a conduit yes. for the message uh, rather than. Um, Projecting, you know, this is me. It's not an it's not an art of celebrity. It's an art of communicating. Mm, absolutely, something else. yeah. And I think that's a, a big issue that we have with uh, performance anxiety for musicians, which is really only just starting to, to attract the attention and the response that it deserves to deal with that. Because a development of the understanding and the awareness and the enlightenment that that's really what we're doing. Um, it just doesn't happen in in higher education and music. It's it's just starting to now. But it's you know you look at sports psychology, and they've been way ahead of the game on this for years now and musicians are just starting to realize that you can be in control of of the process through through great preparation in the same way that we we pay attention to our scales and our and our repertoire and our excerpts if we also pay attention to the, this mental preparation of performance then we everybody gets a better outcome out of it and that must apply in you know, when you have to get up on stage and deliver a report to government or engaging with stakeholders at at, uh, at Grattan, this is what you're trained to do and have done so many times. That's right. And and obviously we do a huge amount of media and that's perhaps where the performative aspect yes. comes out most. Mm-hmm. Um, uh there's probably nothing more nerve-wracking than live television. <laughs> um, and it's a performance. Yeah. And, and as you say, you have to be prepared for that, both in terms of command of the material and in terms of knowing how do I respond when I'm trying to perform. Yeah, what choices am I going to make? And having practised that as well. Yeah. And uh, I think another thing that came out of your career story is that you've, you are someone who has seen a problem and been determined to find a solution to that. Because that's what you were saying, that the, the orchestra didn't have any violas. And I could see there would be more opportunity for me if I switched to viola. And I could see that I could get the opportunity I wanted to in the choir at Cambridge if I didn't tell them that I played the violin. And that, that has will, will have transferred into your consulting career at McKinsey because that's what consultancy is. It's communicating with others and solving their problems. Solving those problems, I mean, uh, I think it's often described as, as the strategic view. It's, it's stepping back and saying, well, in this situation what's going to give me the biggest advantage mm. or what's going to provide the most value or whatever it might be. And I think if you if you look at all of those examples you've talked about, it was all about saying, well, in this particular situation, maybe I adjust. Uh, maybe I um, uh, don't play the violin. Maybe I play the viola mm. because there's not as many violas floating around and I can you know, get a much bigger, better gig with my mm. much better players <laughs> um, uh, playing viola. Uh, and so, yes, it's that strategic adjustment to the situation. And, and from one of the things I sort of learned at McKinsey was that really great strategists are trying to find that marriage between what are the capabilities that a particular corporate has got and what is the situation mm. Uh, and then how do I find the optimal path yeah. given both of those things? Yeah, it's the fit gap. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that, that's we do that in the practice room as well. We have a, a, a mental uh, oral idea of what we're trying to produce and that's not necessarily what's coming out of our fingers or out of our face. So how do I close that quality gap yeah. um, between what I want to produce and what's coming out right now? So, again, that's a great 
skill that comes out of music training that applies to anything. I think that's right. I think, you know, one of the things about music is uh, certainly if you're going to get very far, you've got to be slightly bloody-minded perfectionist <laughs> um, to mm. to make progress. You've got to be always listening. You know, this is by definition something you've been practising for weeks or months and you're always listening to say, well, how can that be a little bit better? Mm. Uh, and I think if you're in the business of trying to produce, as we do, um, reports and then talk about them in public, you know, every day you're picking up the draft and saying, well, look, it's pretty good and we've been working at it for months, but how can it be that mm. little bit better? And and I think music's a kind of somewhat brutal training that um, uh, in finding that that next thing that you can make just mm. that little much bit better and understanding that that a truly great performance is a consequence of a whole series, a huge number of mm. those decisions to make tiny little things better and then they all come together and, and that's what what makes it. You, you can't say, well, there's just one big decision there and there's often, you know, quite big decisions, but but it's really it's about a whole series of tiny, tiny mm. little things. Mm. Um and of course, there's a there's a real balance in in being able to ultimately say, you know, well, that's as far as it's going. You know, as they say, great paintings are never finished; they're only abandoned. Mm. Uh, <laughs> and and the same is true, I guess, uh, in music. Although I guess you also have the advantage of fixed deadlines and performances, yes. and you you show up on the anointed day and you play the best you can, and that's kind of how it is. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, you know, that's uh, we have a focus on perfection in classical music because if it's not, if, if we're not replicating perfectly what's on the page, it's not right, air quotes right. But I think the, the bigger gift out of it is this training for mastery, that there's always, as good as it is today, I can always tweak a few things to... To, to improve a little. Yeah, and I, I actually think it's a little harsh on, on classical music because I don't think it's ever about perfection. It's always about making it better because apart from anything else, really great players never play it the same way twice. Mm. You know, they get bored apart from anything else. Yeah. Uh, and the whole point is you always are sitting there and in the flow of the moment you go, oh, I wonder what happens if I do this and you try it. And sometimes it's really fantastic. Very occasionally you go, oh. <laughs> Won't do that again. Won't do that again. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, it, you know, it, if you're performing on a regular basis, it, it encourages you to do that. It encourages mm. you to play. Yeah. Uh, and and, and to, to be to, to be playful. Yeah, yes. that's right. Yeah. And then I think the other really terrific skill um, that you get out of music, and I think particularly out of chamber music, to some extent out of orchestral playing, but particularly out of chamber music, is that ability to have your own thing that you are contributing and at the same time be listening to what everybody else mm. is doing as mm-hmm. their own thing yep. and then all at the same time working out how does that all fit together? And then, of course, there's the actual dialogue with the other players, you know, as in spoken dialogue about, well, you know, um, as you negotiate, how do you make this particular passage work or mm. or, or how do you get the most out of um, a particular um, feature of the piece? Um, I think that those are tremendous listening and negotiation mm. skills in which you're simultaneously trying to listen and get some of what you want as well uh, and see what other people want, you know, really adding to that. Mm. There's not a lot of things as a as a younger person that really teach you to do that. It's very possible to go through an awful lot of school and just basically do your own thing yeah. and you hand in your own thing and off you go. Music's one of those things, particularly as soon as you start playing chamber music, yeah. where 
you're 10 minutes in and you figure the world is very different. That just doesn't work. <laughs> I think it's also a great training for leadership. Chamber music's the perfect place to train for that because you have to, somebody has to take decisions around intonation and tuning and articulation and phrasing. But there's four of you on the stage and in the rehearsal room and it's like a, it's a family or a marriage, uh, so you have to get along. And I think that training for leadership within chamber ensemble making is absolutely such a, a wonderful transitional skill to anywhere. Is yeah. that, is that, do you see that your experience in chamber music is mapped across in that way? I think so. I mean, it, it teaches you compromise. Mm. It teaches you successful compromise in which everyone gets most of what they want. Um, the sum is indeed, sorry, the whole is indeed greater than the sum of the parts. But everyone probably hasn't got everything they wanted. Mm. Uh, and... And it's certainly a training for leadership. Heaven knows it's also a training for policy and politics. You know, politics is the art of the possible. Um, if anyone as a politician says, well, I want I want it all my way, it, it never ends well. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, successful politicians are by definition those who are good at crafting a compromise which gives most people mm. most of what they want. Mm. So are there any other key skills that you think that your music training has influenced in your career success across your roles in policy and academia and in the corporate world? Look, I think probably the other thing I'd mention is that um, uh, it teaches you that there's more to life than money. <laughs> uh, heaven knows no one no one plays music really for the money, um, or at least not very many. No, uh, not classical musicians anyway. Certainly not classical musicians. Uh, and I think it, it really... It makes it very obvious to you very early that that um, this is not a game in which the person who dies with the most money wins. Mm. Um, this is uh, this is something in which uh, what we create together, the kind of completely abstract and indefinable joy that comes from music, is kind of the point of the exercise. Mm. Uh, and I think that's a good lesson to learn, you know, particularly if you spend time in corporate life. It's very easy to start thinking that that making more money is really the point and actually it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, bringing joy to people's lives, making other people's lives better, making your own life better, bring a bit of joy to your own life, mm. that's actually the point. Yeah. And music, I think, teaches that life lesson, which is maybe the most important of all. There's a really big push in the States, actually, in their higher education to be educating their uh, musicians as this model of artist-citizen, where they're not just educating them to be high-level performers, but they're educating them to work in communities and build their own social enterprise projects based on music and creativity and connection. Um, and that's also that's a way that young musicians can build a new audience for themselves as well, because classical... Uh, if you want to go to a classical music concert, particularly in somewhere like the major metropolitan cities, you're spoilt for choice, um, and we're all trying to get the same amount of money off, a, off the same amount of people, um, whereas if we can look to build new ways of being relevant, and if, as we've talked about before, about finding a problem, you know, I think a lot of, there's a lot of healing needs to go on in, in various sectors of the community, and we, if we can do that through our music, it, it, makes, it feeds our need to do something that's meaningful and shows that music's not just for ent- classical music, particularly, it's not just about entertainment and standing on a stage in front of people. Oh, well, I think that's absolutely right, and and of course, music has always had a very strong community element, mm. uh, maybe sometimes less so. Uh, and the, the reality is, there's a discipline to it, and it's hard to participate if there's no discipline. Mm. Um, uh, but on the other hand, 
it is ultimately accessible. Anyone who is prepared to put in a bit of time to the discipline can very rapidly participate in music and have a great time and get a lot out of it. Mm. And I think that uh, you, you look at the work that people have done with community choirs and you realise, you know, it's there's a lot more of this that could be going on than maybe we realise. Yeah. But on the other hand, it, it does have to be made to be done in a way that um, really brings people along. Well, my observation would be the people who actually tend to bring people along the fastest are actually just simply the best musicians often. Mm. Uh, the, the the communication and the performance abilities they, they bring will bring people along with them instinctively very quickly. Mm. Uh, on the flip side, I've, I've seen, you know, nine classes full of nine-year-old cl- uh, children with a... Not very good musician in front of them, you know, busy trying to teach them to sing and the kids figure out that this is not a very exciting experience yeah. and this is not very good music very, very fast. Very and just disengage immediately. You can see it. it all yeah. goes to custard. Yeah. And it's very hard to get them back from that point for the rest of their lives because that's been, in, like you said, where the twig first breaks is where it stays. That's right. And there's a quick story I'd like to share with you. Talking about great musicians making quick change, uh, there's a colleague of mine called Laura DeSelgi who works at Girton Grammar in Bendigo and she w- is really passionate about community choirs, which you've just referenced, and she created a choir in Bendigo. They're called Forever Young. And I think you have to be 85 to get in. And and they sing, this choir sings only rock and pop songs. They sing um, Nirvana and Slipknot and Adele, but they only sing songs of lust and love and longing because oh. the opportunity to sing about those very deep emotional issues when you're an older person's not there. So she's created this choir and they, they perform once a year and they have a guest artist come and perform with them. And she talks, Laura talks about how these um, older people, they have now have a sense of purpose and uh, they come along each week to the choir. Nobody goes to the doctor anymore and they're connected through music in, into these very deep emotions that, that gets us into music in the first place. So, it's oh. yeah, just uh, just want to give Laura a plug because she's doing brilliant work and I'm <laughs> so, so proud of that. It just as a great example of what we can do with the talent and the training that we have. Oh, I'm going to move to Bendigo yeah, when I'm yeah. 85. <laughs> <laughs> you might get to sing some Nirvana. <laughs> so, uh, John, can you tell us what role you've, you've spoken about that you play for the South Yarra um, ballet exams now. Does music play any other role in your life at the moment? Oh, look, I have children who are learning music, um, uh, so I occasionally accompany them and certainly sit down and listen to them and talk to them about their music. Uh, obviously, it's something I listen to all the time. It's not just every day, but it's kind of most of the time. So I think when you've spent that much of your life playing and listening to music, it's never not there. Mm. And are your musical interests varied? Uh, well, there was a point in my life in which I thought that Western music had essentially, in fact, music in general had come to an end in 1975 when Shostakovich <laughs> died. Um, but I've, 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 Broadened out somewhat, um, and uh, I've certainly learnt um, a lot more about jazz uh, than I knew 20 years ago over the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I will confess that some of the things that my daughters listen to, um, I'm not yet convinced that there's <laughs> enormous musical value in there. Um, I, you know, but maybe I'll be convinced over time. Uh, but there'll be future classics, <laughs> indeed. But you know, otherwise, anything between Talos and Shostakovich, and um, I think one of the things that I've certainly become aware of over the last couple of years is the incredibly deep traditions from 
um, the Middle East and India. And, of course, you've got people like the Australian Chamber Orchestra mm. and Vardros doing those extraordinary synthesis mm. of of that of a Western music tradition with those uh, Middle Eastern traditions. Uh, and that, they're, that's really interesting mm. music. Um, I don't pretend to understand it um, from a... a uh, structural and technical point of view in the way that, you know, obviously you under- I understand the classical music tradition, but, you know, there's clearly a lot of stuff going on. Mm. Uh, it's clearly very complex music. It's clearly, it's really interesting mm. and it's and it's quite moving and it's quite compelling. And it attracts a new audience, attracts a different audience. So for our young musicians wanting to work out how to build a musical life for themselves, collaboration with somebody, with people that are different than you um, opens up a whole world of creative possibilities and building new audience for for the music that you're creating. So that's and I think that's particularly important for Australian musicians. Mm. Uh, we are now one of if not the most multicultural country in the world. 25% of Australians were not born here, 50% have um, a parent who was not born here. Um, uh, and and it's no longer that those migrants are, you know, mostly from Britain and the rest mm. from Europe. Uh, we're now in a country in which, um, you know, a huge number of Australians are from from China, from India, from Malaysia, mm. from the Middle East, uh, from the Sudan. Uh, and and if you're going to speak to all of those people and to their traditions. Um, then I think being able to work with them, uh, and many of them have these incredibly deep and rich and interesting musical traditions. Now, of course, to to step across from your culture to somebody else's complex technical musical tradition is a very big step um, a lot of the time. It requires you know, a bit of time and a bit of patience and an awful lot of listening. Uh, but I think it's really important for our society um, we are succeeding in seeing those bridges being built in all sorts of yes, ways. That's we right. see any number of. I mean, when I was growing up, you know, cooking spaghetti bolognese was pretty <laughs> out there. Um, you know, today my daughters think absolutely nothing of cooking some, you know, incredibly complicated Middle Eastern recipe, mm. um, and you know, completely appropriating that particular or indeed lots of other culinary traditions and. So we've succeeded in, mm. in doing it with food mm. uh, and I think it's a challenge to see if we can do it with music. In the creative industries, absolutely. Well, then, then we're, making, we're, we're creating and making music that's of our time. Mm. We're not just repeating the traditions of 250 years ago, which, which are interesting and valuable, but, but we could be creating new ways of doing things. Yeah, I think of it as building. Mm. Um, uh, you know, I think most great artists are the first to say, I am building on a tradition. I could not do what I yep. do unless I know what I've already inherited. Mm-hmm. Um, and that goes a long way back. If you go all the way back to Bach, I mean, he was busy ripping off everybody else's stuff <laughs> uh, and building on top of mm-hmm. it and was completely unfussed about the idea that everybody else would take his stuff and build on it. And actually one of the one of my bugbears from a policy perspective is I think we are way way too precious about copyright. Um, uh, We make it far too Mm. difficult uh, and we put far too many restrictions around using material that someone else has developed. Mm. If you look at the the musical tradition, great musicians and indeed probably pretty ordinary musicians have always made good music by building on Mm. what they've inherited. And the deal is... 
you do that and then you expect that somebody else will take your material and build on it as well. Mm. And and if you don't want to be part of that, fine. Uh, but in that case, you're not entitled to use any of the stuff you've inherited. Yeah. It's a lot of barriers to innovation and creativity in our industry, I think, through through that issue around copyright. I think it's a real problem. Mm, yeah. I think it's a real problem. And, and, and ironically, some of the staunchest defenders are people from, well, I suspect more the musical industry than musicians. Yes, yeah. Uh, and uh, I think if you look at, at the musical tradition, uh, then it's very obvious that we've... Um, the best times have been the times in which we have made it easiest mm. to copy, to take, to adapt, to build um, and carry on. Mm. So uh, move, moving on from, from that conversation around innovation and reform and kind of what's next, um, as a young musician, is there something that you wish that you knew? Uh, look, I wish I knew that it actually wasn't that hard to improvise and it wasn't that hard to play jazz because I just never did any of it as a as a child. Um, and I wish I'd had a few more lessons early on in just the technique of how all of that works. Mm. Uh, and maybe I would have picked up a lot more of it a lot earlier and I'm now at the point where it's getting quite difficult to teach an old dog new tricks. <laughs> um, so, yes, I wish I'd done that and, mm. and that would have been good advice. Um, uh, maybe the other piece of advice I wish I'd had, I, I've kind of figured out quite early on when I was kind of about year 10, I think, um, that um, I loved playing music, um, that most of the amateurs I knew were really happy and quite a lot of the professionals I knew were not so happy. Mm. Uh, and that really made the decision for me that I would pursue a series of um, interests outside of music mm. from a professional perspective. But one way or another, maintain my music um, uh, as something that was very much part of my life, but not something that you know I got paid mm. for. I, 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 use the, I think the phrase "expand your range" yes, is really it, beautiful because that <laughs> applies on a on a technical point from our instrument, but really just about our approach to life and success. Yeah. So um, I wish uh, I'd had a wee bit more reassurance, maybe some of the time that actually that was not. That was perhaps quite a sensible way for mm. me, at least, mm. um, to approach life and and to say that yes, it's fine if music if you, you can be a really good musician, uh, and nevertheless you don't actually have to be a professional musician. You mm. can do something else with your life, um, as well as continue to be um, uh, an, an amateur musician, which of course doesn't necessarily mean you're a worse musician. It just means that you love it mm. and and develop a strong sense of uh, self identity as a musician, regardless yeah. of how that's playing out in, in your life. Yeah. yeah, John, it's been fascinating. Thank you so much. That's all we've got time for today. Um, thank you very much for joining us and sharing your story. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. So you can find links to anything we've talked about today in our show notes. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, then help us to spread the word by sharing this podcast with your fellow music lovers. I'm Susan DeWedger, and this has been Beyond the Stage for 3MBS. Thanks for listening. Thanks to producer Penny Manwaring Thomas. Our theme music, The Song of Us, was composed by Natasha Pearson and performed by Natasha Lynn, Alison McIntosh Deschch, and Susan DeWedger.
This 3MBS podcast has been made possible by the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia and the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Hello podcast listeners, 3MBS is very excited to open its podcast to the world and we hope that you're enjoying listening as much as we're enjoying creating them. And although we love nothing more than providing you with free content, we'd like to mention that we're a station funded largely by memberships and subscriptions. We'd love you to support our station and encourage you to sign up or donate at 3mbs.org.au and enjoy the many wonderful benefits and satisfaction we give to our subscribers. Enjoy your podcast. Enjoy your podcast.